and welcome to episode 27 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about cats in books versus dogs in books. Bear with <laughs> us. Um, and we'll also be comparing The Dover Road by A. Milne with Blythe Spirit by Nog Howard. Um, but first, Rachel, I did see you the other day, but still, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, <laughs> Not a lot going on here, really, but we should talk about... Are we going to talk about our trip to the theatre, or are we going to talk about that later? Maybe we should talk about it later, since we've shoehorned it into the episode now, <laughs> into the theme. Um, yes, yeah, Simon and I had a lovely time on Friday, seeing a play which we'll discuss later. Um, so, yeah, what are you reading? Um, I'm reading A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Very nice. Yeah, for my course, so um, on Victorian studies if people who don't know I do my master's degree which is scary um <laughs> and it's yeah it's good so far I haven't got that that much into it but it's everything you'd expect from Charles Dickens in that it's ridiculously over the top and I'm 40 pages in and already a woman has fainted so <laughs> have you read it before I haven't no I mean I haven't actually I'm not a huge fan of Charles Dickens I have to say um I find his stuff like quite bloated and wordy which i know is his style but it just you know i just like just get to the point um <laughs> i'm having flashbacks read... to our dickens episode now yes <laughs> no, exactly and i mean i had to read quite a lot from my degree and um i just sort of went off it i really like our mutual friend for some reason i've always really liked that but um no i haven't read anything else but this i'm liking it much more than i thought i would so perhaps this will you know i will rediscover a joy for dickens who knows who knows there will be a nice um outcome from the course wouldn't it just (laughs) how about you what have you been reading um i'm sort of i feel like i'm between books at the moment but the one i was i finished um at the weekend which was one that i think i was reading when i saw you was in purple hibiscus by tremanda and oh, yeah, with a lovely cover with a beautiful cover so it's just been reprinted by fourth estate along with all of her books um well i think all of her books um with these beautiful sort of african print covers and lovely texture covers as well as sort of like a thick card um with wraparound um edges and it's very much made me want to get the entire series of them <laughs> <laughs> um which i probably will do eventually because i don't own any of her books already so it's not as though i'd be Getting duplicates. Yeah. Yes, her book Viscous was her first book, and um, it's all about a family in Nigeria where the um, it's basically about an abusive father um, who is a pillar of the community and a pillar of the church, but at home is um, yeah quite abusive to his daughter, who is the narrator, and her brother and her mother, um, and we see through her eyes a sort of contrast between her childhood and that those of her that of her cousins who she used to visit um but yeah she's such a good writer it's really fluidly told and for a debut it's astonishing it's really really good oh wow okay yeah. i mean i've never really thought about reading any of her stuff but um you've intrigued me now that sounds like a really good story yeah it's um yeah if, if, if ever there was a time it is with these beautiful new editions <laughs> so. and is it is fourth estate have they um have they done it for other authors or is it just her for the moment um, I don't know actually. I only saw them. I saw them on Twitter and just clicked through. So well done, Fourth Estate. Your Twitter advertising works. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, I only saw them on the sort of her author page. But they might well have done it for others. Hmm. Um, yeah, certainly the new ones I've seen with those with those covers. 
This seems to be the latest trend because that um, I was reminded when I looked at your book of the Nancy Mitford ones that mm, I think Penguin mm. is it was it Penguin did? I think yeah, I think Penguin. it was, yeah. Um, so this whole, I think really, I have to credit where credit's due, I think Persephone have started this whole fancy paperback with flaps trend. Absolutely, yeah. And everyone's jumped on the bandwagon now. Um, yeah, absolutely, and the patterned covers, I guess Virago mm. copied those not long after. <laughs> and then um, there's some lovely yeah. new editions of Virginia Woolf's novels that Vintage are just bringing out. Oh, um, yes, I entered a competition uh, to win those. Oh, did you? I did, yeah. I was thinking, oh. I've already got two copies of all of her books. Do yeah. I need a third set? <laughs> Probably not. I know, I had that. I was like, you do have every single copy of her book like in about three different editions. <laughs> um, do you really need this? I was like, absolutely. Yes. I probably won't win anyway, so I'm not very good at competitions. In this case, I assume it's entirely luck. <laughs> yes, no, it is. Yeah. And it was one of those questions where it was like, if you honestly don't get this right, then you're, you shouldn't even be entering this. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'm just about to start reading for the 1947 Club as this episode goes live, depending on whether when I edit it. It's probably either just before or in the middle of 1947 Club week. Um, I failed that on that uh, front completely. You've got a good excuse for your reading for the Victorian course. Yes. I'll, I'll let you off. If, we, if we'd done 1847 week, you'd have been on fire. I would have been there like a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do Victoria next time. I don't know. Well, do you know? Perhaps we should. Maybe I will do this. Uh, oh, true. You can you can take 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 the um the helm. Yeah. <laughs> Leave Karen and me doing covering the twentieth century, and you can set up a rival nineteenth century one. I'm going back in time, guys. <laughs> the good stuff is. And then someone will do like the eight hundred and forty-seven one, <laughs> exclusively Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> 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 yes, I didn't see a lot of people blogging about Anglo-Saxon literature in the blogosphere. <laughs> reason i feel yes perhaps you're right <laughs> all of us english graduates have been there and i don't really think we want to go back no, i certainly don't <laughs> plus it's always about warriors and spears yes very so, violent yes very violent people the anglo-saxons <laughs> oh dear um yeah so shall we go on with topic one Yes, which I am going to say now was entirely your suggestion. I probably <laughs> disagreed with it, but we're going ahead with it anyway. So if this is ridiculously rambly, then you have no one to blame but Simon. <laughs> Rachel sent me a message at lunchtime today saying, can we do something else? I was like, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. Um, I'm going to shamelessly pass the buck here as well. Not back to Rachel, um, but to my friend Kirsty, who is one of the uh, fellow bloggers at Volpus Libris who I think is a joke, messaged me saying that we should do something about cats. Um, but I took it and ran with it. <laughs> um, and here we are. And here we are. Yeah. And who knows, it could be our best discussion ever. Wow. <laughs> um, I think it's worth clarifying from the outset that we are talking about cats in books and dogs in books rather than cats and dogs in real life. Because there might yeah. be a difference. I don't know. Um, but let's get out of the way first. How do you feel about cats and dogs in real life? I intensely dislike cats and I love dogs and this is a flaw in your character that I will do my best to overlook <laughs> <laughs> because as you know I adore cats and I don't dislike dogs they're all very well in their place but <laughs> but yeah I don't and, mind individual cats like I like my sister's cat he's cute but I'm just not really I've I had a bad experience with a cat as a child I think it scarred me literally or metaphorically <laughs> Well, both, actually. Mm. I mean, it was a deep scratch, Simon. I was only trying to feed the cat some milk. It was a stray cat. 
Well, that's um, a heartrending tale. I know, and I was just trying to help the cat, you know? It just <laughs> lashed out at me. It was a very traumatic experience. My mum so was not very laughing. upset about it because she thought I might have tetanus. Um, whereas my dad was quite badly bitten by a dog once and, and had a tetanus shot and something else, and he was very allergic to one of those two things. Oh. So he, he, I was, yes, he doesn't like dogs very much. Well, I can understand that, you know. Fair enough. Whereas, as far as I know, no cattle dog has ever severely injured me. And I, I feel like I would know. <laughs> so, <laughs> unless I just repress that memory. Um, but, so that's cleared that up. We know where yes. we stand in real life. What were your first thoughts other than I need to find someone else to do a podcast with when I suggested <laughs> cats and dogs in literature? Well, I have to say, my first thought was, I don't really know if I ever notice animals in literature. Because I'm so focused on the people, and unless you're reading a book where an animal is like a really central character, like Animal Farm, um, or perhaps like a children's book like Michael Morpurgo or something like that, you don't often tend to find adult books that feature animals in a way that's meaningful. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think there are going to be quite, if, if well, any instances we do think of are quite likely to be either children's books or just sort of, yeah, they're mentioned in one paragraph in the book and that's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, my most... I'm going to go down the dog route here because, you know, cats aren't my thing, as we just discussed. Mm. Um, and the like the most prominent example I can think of is Candy's dog and of Mice and Men. Um, and, you know, being an English teacher, I can't resist that reference. <laughs> I'm currently teaching it to my year nines and we're loving it. Um and, you know, Candy's dog is so powerful, and I think when you study the novel or read the novel either way, it's a really powerfully moving section when, um, for people who don't know, um, Candy's dog is this dog who's, like, super old and blind and lame, and it really smells, and they live in this communal bunkhouse, the characters, and another character says to Candy, who owns the dog, you know, you've got to get rid of that dog, you've got to shoot that dog, he's no good to himself, he's no good to us, um, and you can have a new puppy, because one of the other guys on the ranch is, is just, his um, his dog has just had some puppies. And Candy's like, no, I love this dog, I've had it since it's a baby, it's been with me all my life, and it's, you know, in a world where these people have no family and have no lasting friendships, that dog means everything to him. And eventually he's bullied into shooting the dog, um, but he can't do it. So um, Carlson, who suggests killing the dog, goes out and shoots the dog instead. And this is the allegory for what will eventually happen to Lenny and George. Um, and I just find it really, really touching because it really expresses in Candy's reaction and the reaction of the others how important um, the relationship between man and dog can be and how a dog can replace um, or a cat, you know, depending on, you know, how you feel about, <laughs> um, can, can really take the place of another human and of human affections. And I think a lot of people who perhaps aren't close to animals might scoff at the idea that you could feel that way about an animal. I think this book shows really well how, um, you know, a dog can really be like a child or like a sibling to, to people. Yeah. I, I think, um, Perhaps particularly in a classroom, but also imagine with anyone, if you've got a person who dies in a book, mm. your reaction is fairly often, particularly if it's an incidental character, not that bothered. But if, an, yeah. if a dog or a cat or an animal in general, particularly a dog, I suppose, dies in a book, that you, you just, yeah, the class will just go, you know, will cry out and sort of, oh no. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it feels, 
somehow much more real um, or much more upsetting often. Um, yeah. Perhaps because a lot of us can relate to having a pet die and not that many of us can relate to, you know, having to shoot our best friend or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people as well can come to that being like, oh, I've had to put a pet down and there's that mixture of guilt and sadness that comes with that of thinking I'm doing what's right but at the same time, you know, it's painful and I think that's quite quite powerful and I think the vulnerability of animals as well and that feeling that we're responsible for them and they don't have a choice that's yeah. so powerful we're making the choice for them and I don't think you often come across human dynamics like that in novels unless you've got a character who's perhaps you know mentally um disabled in some way yeah absolutely um well when I was thinking um I was saying earlier, it's, it sort of surprised me, although I don't know why it did, that I had read so many books with cats as main characters. Um, because I, I feel when they're a main character that it can go either way for me. Because although I love cats very much, I don't love sort of very soppy depictions of cats. Um, yeah. particularly, you know, knowing we've had, um, three different cats over my life in, in my family. Um, and you know, living with a cat, you, they're they're the opposite of soppy themselves because they are firstly like often ruthless killers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and secondly they're very independent usually, uh, and can be very affectionate. But they are, um, in general, like if they don't want to come to you, they won't come to you. Like a dog, if it's called, will will sort of reluctantly come if it doesn't want to come, or very happily come. A cat will just be like, I'm coming if I want to. Otherwise, see ya. I'm gonna go sleep behind the bookcase. So, um, and I like it when they're very realistically portrayed in books and the example i haven't done some examples um so i realized i've read four books which are mostly about cats <laughs> um maybe I won't do them all now but i'll give you two contrasting examples um i read jenny by paul gallico and i love paul gallico particularly when he's writing his darker books um like love of seven dolls or something um mm-hmm. and sometimes when he's very frivolous in the mrs harris series are very fun yes. but um jenny is all about a boy who accidentally Accidentally, I forget quite how it happens. He turns into a cat and he has to be guided around the town by this cat called Jenny. Um, and I just found it a bit too fey, a bit too, um, she's giving all these cat rules and it's about f- f- when in doubt wash is one of them. There's all these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is definitely, you know, cats will just leap into washing if anything happens. Um, and it's all, I don't know, it's, it's not like, oh, too, um, ridiculous. And there are some real life, style incidents that happened to them but i just felt the whole thing was a bit fluffy <laughs> no pun intended um, <laughs> <laughs> whereas one i really liked that uh thomas who blogs at um hogglestock i think gave to me or certainly recommended to me i'm gonna say gave no he did give it to me um is the fur person by may sarton which is from the perspective of a cat so i say again i love may sarton oh, and this is the oh no i've read one more read i read as we you read were. the one I gave you, didn't you? Was that As We Were? Well, you gave me The Magnificent Spinster, didn't you? Yeah, so have you not and read that? I've not read that yet. Oh. <laughs> I've got it on my shelf, I will, I will. <laughs> Instead, I read the one about cats. <laughs> so, um, and that one is from the perspective of a cat, and it's she going to, around these different potential owners, and it is. it felt to me very realistic in that the, the reasons why the cat does or doesn't like certain people seem to be why cats would like this one picks me up all the time I don't like them <laughs> essentially that sort of thing and completely heartless but not in a cruel way because cats are fairly heartless um, yeah. 
yeah, <laughs> to strangers and sometimes to not strangers. Um, so yes, it's, it's interesting reading, in fact, the perspective of a creature that can do unkind things without them being intended unkindly. It's quite interesting. So I think those are my two sort of contrasting um, how cats can work in fiction, whether they can either be cutesy or they can be realistic, and I definitely prefer the realistic. And how do you feel about cats who are speaking characters and cats who aren't speaking characters? So, you know, like when a... So from a dog perspective, 101 Dalmatians, the characters are dogs, they're talking, um, as opposed to a, 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 an animal that belongs to a human character. Um, I think I'd be open for either, although it's harder to make it not cutesy if it's a talking animal, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I think I do really like it if a cat just appears briefly. Obviously, then it wouldn't be speaking. But um, if it's just appears in one scene and, yeah, just an incidental thing in the background rather than talking to anyone or having a big role to play, and then it's often very amusing and I enjoy seeing um, that sort of cat. Um, but yeah, something like, yeah, in, in fact, both, in both Jenny and the third person, the cat, well, the cat narrates the third person, the third person, I think, so it's not quite talking to people. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I can't get on with books where animals are, are people, apart from Animal Farm, which is fine because it's an allegory, I can, I can get behind that, but anything, like, all those children's books with animals in, like that, I was never, fussed by at all apart from obviously the animals of farthing wood which is a different category entirely oh i've never read it <gasps> did you not watch the tv series no i didn't this is like a british rite of passage for any american people <laughs> listening um animals of farthing wood was a 90s tv series from books about animals who lived in farthing wood and there were some it, all about basically them trying to cross the road, I seem to remember. <laughs> and there like was a always a casualty thing. every episode, and it was terrible. Um, <laughs> but I think things like that, I, I, where I, I've always found it difficult to have that leap of faith with books like that, where I just can't cope with, with animals being people. Do you know what I mean? So is 101 Dalmatians out as well, then? Yeah, I, I never read it as a child, to be honest. Um, no, neither did I, actually. I, I do like, uh, I think you texted this to me earlier, and yeah, I thought, oh yeah, I do like that. Timmy the dog in Famous Five. Timmy. Everyone loves a bit of Timmy, and he's woofing at uh, key moments. Yes, easily the best of the five. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Timmy is a character in a way, because he often helps to solve things, and he spots stuff, and brings their attention to things, and that's quite nice when the dog is an integral part of the action, but doesn't speak. I don't... That's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, I, I, for a dog with sort of superlative intelligence, he never learns not to eat drugged meat, though, does he? No, he doesn't. What's <laughs> not happening, Timmy. It's like, come on, learn a lesson, Tims. <laughs> um, one of the other examples I wrote down, which is it, it falls into the not speaking um, version, is a book called The Guest Cat by, forgive me for my pronunciation, Takashi Hiradi, maybe? Um, my Japanese pronunciation is not up to scratch. <laughs> so many puns in this episode. But um, anyway, uh, did you? That was all, all the rage um, last year. Did you see that at all? I didn't. No. Um, it was an impulse buy for me in foils. I think um, I was just, yeah, I was just wandering through to you know have a browse, and I couldn't resist it. And that's uh, so. It, was really, it is originally a Japanese uh, novella, and um, it's. It's a really beautiful little book about a couple who a cat sort of wanders into their house and they um 
just sort of you know say hi or whatever <laughs> um and then gradually start to look after it and it, it the visits of that cat are, are used as a sort of way to document their ch- sort of evolving relationship and they can say things about the cat that they can't say about their own marriage that sort of thing if you see what i mean interesting um and that's really and that's definitely not a aunt cat's gorgeous way sort of book it's more of a this cat is the way that we're going to explore this relationship and that's really cool that's a very interesting concept yeah um, it worked really well i, I realize like any description of it sounds bizarre but it does work <laughs> and it was yeah it was very very popular very briefly and then sort of seems to have disappeared again oh, yeah i can't say i've heard of it actually um, I think partly it was popular because it was around Christmas and it was quite small and it was a nice cover. So I think everyone oh, was just you know, stocking it stockings. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the ones I wrote down for my sort of incidental one um, is, and I can't remember many, many details, but in Mother and Son by Ivy Conte Burnett, I, I just remember there being a cat who was great because the owner was always like, you know, sort of, oh, this cat's wonderful. And the cat was just getting up and ignoring it all the time i love i love i just love characterful cats and they always seem to be called reproachful in books they always give reproachful gaze on people i just love reading about cats re- reproachful gazes <laughs> yeah cats are often depicted as being haughty aren't they mm, exactly. you've got dogs who are mostly used as symbols of loyalty and um, solving crime and... <laughs> yeah you know because dogs are better frankly well i would argue both in novels and in real life that this shows that cats have more character <laughs> would you rather have character or would you rather have loyalty i know what i would choose <laughs> in an animal character <laughs> mm. in a person perhaps loyalty yes. um i don't know i was I, I wouldn't be able to have a dog or anything just because partly it's too much work and i'm lazy but partly because they just i feel like are they, are, do they really want to come over or do they just feel they have to what is it what does this dog want <laughs> well, they know. just want to be loved and cuddled and played with how do you know? How do you know they're not just being because, obedient? No, because they tell you, you know? They tell you in a way that cats don't. In what way is that? <laughs> I can't explain <laughs> It's just people will know what I mean. You know, you can always tell where you are with a dog, whereas with a cat, you just are never quite sure. Well, I feel like you always can tell the cat because the cat will never lie to you or do something out of duty. So if the cat's come over to sit on you, it's because it really wants to or because it's cold. But yeah, maybe, or because <laughs> yeah. it wants to scratch your eyes out. Oh, cats would never scratch people. Me, they scratch you. Right? <laughs> oh, You're not cats. Just love them so much. Anyway, control yourself, Simon. <laughs> um, speaking of a book which we weren't, which has cats and dogs in it, mm. did you ever read The Incredible Journey by Sheila Burford as a child? I did not, no. Uh, or see the film Homeward Bound. It was yes, on. I can yes. sing the theme tune. I I'll won't. Pull, but okay, I, <laughs> we probably can't afford the copyright on that, so let's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I think I saw the film first, but I did read the book as well, and that was really fun. Could we just mention another classic '90s dog film, Beethoven? Okay. Oh, that's yes. I'm I'm not sure I ever saw Beethoven, but I definitely saw at least one of the sequels. Classic. <laughs> Nazi. Yeah, true. There's a lot of. Uh, it says they're probably easier to train than cats. <laughs> I mean, no, it's all about the loyalty of dogs. To be fair, in The Incredible Journey, all of the animals were loyal. They all went. And we learned, I believe, cats rule, dogs rule, from that book. <sighs> or was that the film? I don't know, possibly. I'm not entertaining this discussion. <laughs> um, well. I, can't, I can't think of any other books that I've read 
Well, I can think of a dog being really important to somebody, but there must be. I just can't think of any. Like I say, I can't, I don't notice, I don't pick up on that kind of thing, which I suppose I should. Yeah, I'm, and um, this perhaps should have been a sign that we shouldn't have done this segment at all, but I, I similarly um, <laughs> can't think of, well, I think dogs die quite often in, in books. They're always like a sign of, you know, utter misery when you have to put, put kill your pet. Yeah. Um, like Marley and me and that sort of thing. Oh, that book oh, is so Spoilers, sad. guys, sorry. <laughs> so sad. I watched the film of that on a plane and it was one, it was like some cheapo plane journey. I can't remember where I was, where, um, you know, you had to, um, it was one screen and you had to pay to buy the headphones and I didn't. So I was like, oh, I've got a book to read. It was a short flight. It must have been somewhere in Europe. And so I was watching it in silence. Sure. And even in silence, not really knowing what was going on, I could kind of gather that this terrible thing was happening. And I was crying. Aww. I was like, no, don't do it, Marley. Marley. <laughs> but, you know, that's about dogs do become part of a family, I think, in a way that perhaps cats don't. But I'm open to be disagreed with on that. Maybe it's just because I've never had that experience. But certainly growing up, I had a dog and, you know, it was like another brother to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, I've never had a dog, but um, I certainly the most grief I've ever felt in my life was when my cat died. Like, yes, more than any of the people I've known who've died. Um, it was, yeah, it, it did feel like a member of the, she did feel like a member of the family. Oh, in fact, I still have a photo of her next to my bed. <laughs> Touching. Isn't it? Oh, bundle. Bless her heart. Anyway, before one of both of us cries, I'll keep going. Um, so if there's a character who, um, loves cats or loves dogs in a book, what do you think that's shorthand for? Or do you think shorthand for anything? Well, I would say a character who loves dogs is somebody who is warm hearted and I would warm to a character naturally who had a dog or who liked a dog in particular. Someone who likes cats wouldn't warm to as much i think as someone who likes cats particularly a woman it's often aligned with being a spinster that kind of quality mm-hmm. um which is a shame really because that's a really negative stereotype yeah i think it's a shame um but I, I i think you're right particularly in a modern novel maybe that you know the woman with lots of cats um in a way that a woman with the dog or indeed a man with a, either of these things um would not be stigmatized in the same mm-hmm. sort of literary trope and that is bad i don't like it um but from an, in an old novel i think if i saw a character with a cat or perhaps i'm just you know trying to be generous to myself i just think oh they seem intelligent with <laughs> 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 some of the dog i just think oh they seem outdoorsy or, or posh maybe someone the walking their dogs through you know through the woods in a book whereas i wouldn't think that in real life i just think oh, they've got a dog they clearly like dogs but in a book i, I sort of i don't know i always feel it's shorthand for upper class <laughs> Unless it's like, like, you know, a bulldog or something, or a pit bull. Yeah. There's more of a... The thing is, you need land or outside space to have a dog, really, don't you? I mean, I know people do have dogs in cities, but, you know, it's not as as common, perhaps, as people who live in the countryside. And I, I just think, remember the... Oh, sorry. No, carry on. Just saying, I just remember the talking dogs in, um, the, in Queen Camilla, and probably the Queen and I, by Sue Townsend. So, um... I think I've mentioned it before here, it's all about the royal family having to move to a council estate um, and they take their dogs with them and the dogs get to know the local dogs and they all sort of basically reflect the royal family and the locals 
in dog form, so there's all the same sort of rivalries and discussions of things going on with the dogs as there is with the people. And oh. somehow it works, because normally, like, you're, like, talking animals, particularly if they're, I don't know, if they're um, in a sort of supposedly real-world setting, would put me off, generally. But it works there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I just can't think of anything else. I mean, I'm sure there must be examples, but they're not coming to mind. I'm sure other people at home will have lots of examples they can use. No, we'd love to hear them. Yes. In fact, I asked people at work today, and the examples I got from them were Harry Potter for cats and uh, Peter Pan for dogs. So there you go. There's a oh, yes, more. Nana, of course. Nana. Yes. Loyal Nana. Yes. See, there we go. Loyal Nana. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yes. I don't, I don't dispute that dogs are probably loyal than cats. But not so pretty. Look at the cat's faces, etc. <laughs> well, I apologise entirely for this segment, guys. Um, and <laughs> um, <laughs> I will. I take zero responsibility for this. Yeah, you've you've done well to get that in from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we'd love to hear any suggestions you have for. Um, cat or dog books, or what you think about it with characters in, who have cats or dogs in books, what you think it says about them. Yeah. Um, I, um, yes, I feel like a, cats in books occupy both my least favourite and most favourite on this spectrum, because a dog in a book doesn't really, I don't, I never love them as much as I might love a cat in a book, but also I'm unlikely to be really put off if it's done in a hideous way, because I just feel like oh, it's just a dog talking, whatever. Um, but, you know, I'm still going to stay loyal to my feline friends and say cats in books. Okay, yeah, I mean, I'm an obvious one here. Dogs. Yeah. This is always a full conclusion for both of us. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, let's just move on to the second half. <laughs> so sorry, guys. Uh, we Please send us ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've had some nice ideas um, in from Tina. Thank you, Tina. Look again at those. Um, what's really useful for ideas making us have to do as little work as possible as if they're in the X versus Y <laughs> um, sort of dynamic of the podcast so we don't have to try and think of things to go with the other, with whatever you suggest. Yeah. <laughs> make us do as, Look what happens when we come up with ideas ourselves, you know, with this cat versus dog nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but the second half will presumably be smoother. Rachel, why do you introduce it for us? Um, yes. So we are going to be comparing um, A.A. Milne's play The Dover Road with um, Noel Coward's play Blythe Spirit, both of which are in from the 1930s, correct? Um, I can't remember when either of them are. I see, Blythe Spirit is in 1941. Ah. Uh, um, and the Dover Road, I think, was probably in the 20s. Oh, okay. <laughs> Completely different time yes. period. Or maybe the, maybe the early 30s. Sure. Um, so we, Simon and I had the great pleasure of watching mm. the play on Friday night, and you'd already seen it before. And it's the first time I've ever gone back to the same production um, again. Ah, which is such a good sign because it was wonderful. So Simon arranged for us to go um, and it was in the German Street Theatre, which is the smallest theatre I've ever been in. Um, mm. 70 seats, I think, isn't it? That's and right. it's on German Street, which is just behind Regent Street in central London. And it's so small that Simon and I were literally sitting on the stage. <laughs> That was definitely an experience. I've never had quite that experience where you can literally touch the actors. Yeah. I'm encouraged not to. Um, but it was, it didn't feel odd at all though, actually. No, I think the only time it felt at all odd was when I realised I had to move my legs so they could get from one part of the stage to the, <laughs> to the other. But apart from that, even if you're that close, you still, 
You do feel separate, don't you? Yeah. But it was wonderful. It was an absolutely wonderful performance. Sadly, nice. now finished. Um, yes, sadly. So, sorry yeah. if we've made you want to watch it and now you can't. Yeah. But, um, the basic story is um, it's the Dover Road is literally the road to Dover. And there is a house there. And there's these two characters um, whose names I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> Leonard and Anne. Leonard and Anne, who... Uh, have some kind of car trouble and the chauffeur says oh it's fine this is a hotel we can stop here for the night and yet they arrive and it seems that the person who owns the house was expecting them there are is some very strange servants um who also seem to very much be expecting them um and it soon transpires that leonard and anne are not the married couple that they claim to be but they are actually leonard is married and um, he is running away with Anne to Calais, hence why they're on the Dover Road. Um, and as events progress, it, we, we soon realise that the guy who owns the house, whose name is, Simon, you have to help me out here. Mr Latimer. Mr Latimer, thank you. Um, make is a wealthy man who makes it his business to stop people from leaving their husbands and wives by capturing them before they make it to France because obviously all people eloping will immediately think to escape to France. Um, <laughs> As Anne says, perhaps the French what we're doing is nicer than the English. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and he keeps them at his house for a week um, to say that they can really get the chance to know one another and consider whether they have made the right choice. Shall we do the plot twist? Oh, why not? Yes, plot twist ahead, guys. Plot twist coming, coming up. <laughs> so, hilariously, there is another couple who have just finished spending their week at the house and they are leaving on the morning, the, the following morning after Anne and Leonard have arrived. And so they bump into each other and it soon transpires that the lady in the couple is um, Eustacia, Leonard's wife, and the man, and the man she is running away with. And it, it is very obvious that the week... In in the house has proven for um, what's his name her partner. What is his name? <laughs> um, oh names I can't do names. Um, oh, I've got the program somewhere. <laughs> the man who Eustacia's running away with anyway has uh, not enjoyed his week at the house and very much regrets his decision to run away with Eustacia. Um, but Eustacia is still very much in love and it's um, it's very funny exploration of what happens basically when you get to know the person that you think that you have fallen in love with. Nicholas. Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. I was so pleased you enjoyed it, Rachel, because I, having sold it to you so much, I was like, oh, I hope she likes it as much as I do. <laughs> I just thought it was fantastic and very funny, like very laugh out loud funny. Yes, and as indeed we were doing. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it is strange laughing at jokes that are being made, you know, a metre away from you. <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, I thought Nicholas, the guy who played Nicholas, uh, James Sheldon particularly, um, who is the one who has to deal with Eustacia being very overly attentive, um, yeah. and him just wanting a bit, a bit of a rest was very, very funny. I yeah. really enjoyed that. Um, before we talk more about that, um, this place actually probably closest to private lives by Nog Howard, but the one that we both know about is uh, Bly Spirit, which um, is, I guess, simply about a love triangle. Or Yes. yes. So... It's about um, the novelist Charles Condamine, um, who invites uh, the uh, invites a woman called Madame Arcati, who who is a, a medium, to come to conduct a séance at his house. Um, in the middle of doing this, he accidentally gets haunted by his first wife, Elvira, um, and she is very sort of characterful and 
rude and feisty and is keen to disrupt his current marriage, which is to Ruth. Um, and throughout the rest of the play, uh, we, we, the audience, and Charles can see Elvira, because she's now just come to live with them. Uh, Ruth can't, um, which leads to a very amusing... Um, Yes, lots of amusing scenes where she doesn't know who he's talking to, etc. Um, all that sort of thing. A bit of a farce. Uh, but similarly is a situation where it's, yes, contrasting current and previous partners in a sort of a very amusing way. In fact, both these things cover things that could be dealt with in very serious terms. And I think Amon's play has more poignant moments, um, mm. than, than Noel Coward's does. Um, but yes, in general, just go, goes with goes for humour first and foremost, and both are actually quite ingenious setups, aren't they? Yes, um, I think I've seen Bly Spirit. I actually went and saw the production of Bly Spirit that was, I think, it was on in London last year or the year before. Um, I went and saw it twice. I loved it so much, mm. um, and it was because it had um, oh, what's her name in it? Maybe see Angela Lansbury. Yes, one. Angela Lansbury, uh. and she was wonderful as Madame Arcati. And it is a very light-hearted and, and funny play. And this this use of ghosts, which you would think was silly, but it actually really works. And it's the humour of um, it. Obviously, depends on how good the cast is when you're watching it. But the humour of of Elvira being impossible to see. Um, by Ruth and Ruth being like Charles thinking Charles is making it all up and it's it's very funny physical humor on the stage um but also I just find it hilarious how towards the end of the play like the two women side with each other thoroughly and you realize mm-hmm. actually the real person who um is to blame here is not Alvira but it is Charles um and yeah I just find it really really humorous yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, th- I think it's, um, it's very, very funny, but also I, I do like that it's not, um, setting women against women, women for the whole thing and that it does have, yeah, more of this, this, this guy's not just a victim of a haunting here. He's also not a great guy himself and he's yeah. to blame for things that went wrong in his marriage and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, th- uh, I just gonna mention, um, Private Lives as well, because I think an interesting trio. For, um, I know you've not seen it, but um, it's very similar to they've read in as much as it's two couples who are on honeymoon, and while on honeymoon, they realise that they're in sharing. They're sorry, they're on yeah, balconies next to each other, and one of them was previously married to one of the other couple. Oh. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, and there's, lo- there's lots of back and forth in it as they sort of realise that their current partners perhaps aren't ideal and maybe they should go back to the original one and then they regret that and all that sort of thing. Um, and in fact, I think one of them is very like Eustacia in terms of she's very clingy and all that sort of thing. Um, Nock, I would rate that play several t- years after the Dover Road and um, people have wondered if it, how inspired he was by it. Because the Dover Road was very successful in its day. It was probably Amon's most successful play, I think. Yeah. Um, and P.T. Woodhouse said it was his favourite play. There oh, you. wow. Yeah. Um, what should we talk about the Dover Road? Yes. Um, it is a, it is a, um, it's not quite as ingenious in some ways as Spice Spirit, and obviously it's not supernatural, but it is, you spend some time at the beginning, particularly if you don't know at all what's going to happen, thinking like, what, how has this man got this control? What's happening? How does he know who they are? 
Sort of, yeah, yeah. He, he to me he seemed quite supernatural, even though he's not supposed to be. There is something otherworldly about him. Yeah, he's sort of like a the puppeteer, I guess. He's mm. playing God, I guess, in yeah. in, in their lives. Um, and it's never the... actually explained how he finds out about the people. That's true. He just sort of explains it away with, "I've got lots of money," so that's yeah. That's but yeah, how but how it... did you know? And why does he pick particular people? Because there must be more than one couple planning on running away with someone else at any point in time. So why does he pick those particular people? That's never explained. And that kind of mysterious element to it is left unanswered, which is quite interesting because I expected when we got to the end for him to be like, oh, um, I'm actually your godfather or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that you never get that moment of, of revelation. It's just left up to you to decide. So that's quite interesting. Yes, and you never really find out his background or what no, what led to this point. Because he does say that he was married once. Yes. So uh, perhaps there's a hint there that he had a tragic breakup of a marriage that perhaps he regretted or something, or maybe his wife ran off with someone else and he's trying to prevent that pain in someone else. True, yeah. Um, and, and it does become clear throughout the play that he has taken rather a shine to Anne. Yes, and I thought that they were going to get together and then they don't I thought okay. I've got this all figured out and then yeah. <laughs> um, I find the character of Anne really interesting I thought um, Georgia something let me let me do act as credit by flicking through my program um, because I'm sure they'll be listening Georgia <laughs> um, <laughs> Maguire uh, who played Anne did a brilliant job with it um, in that she is perhaps the character who's got the most um, poignancy and the most yeah. um, so Bathos, I guess, um, in the play. Not bathos, pathos. Pathos, yes, pathos. Come on, Simon. I'm sorry, no one uses those terms outside of GCSE English. I'm sorry, I got the phone. Maybe there is some pathos. I don't know. There isn't. Um, But yes, she, that scene where um, she and Latimer are pretending that Latimer is Lena that she's running away with, um, and um, he describes what he imagines her upbringing has been like, like this young woman overshadowed by her father's life and, and Leonard's the first man who's paid her any attention um, and she did, didn't realise until too late he was married, all those sorts of things. And in a play which makes great use of, you know, the humour of someone's clothes being dropped in the bath or all that sort of thing, it is, I think it's really well done um, changing emotional tack quite suddenly and you're, you're suddenly quite, I found it quite moving, the way, especially the, the way they did it. Yeah, it is very moving, and I think it's interesting how it explores the fact that, you know, often people make decisions about relationships in order to escape things, and Mm. that sense of Anne realising that she's done it for all the wrong reasons, and that moment of realisation dawning upon her is really powerful. And I think it's really interesting as well, because I expected it to go down quite a simplistic narrative, in that I thought, well, Anne and Nicholas will get together now, um, and mm-hmm. um, Eustacia and Leonard will get back together. But actually, you know, Anne leaves with nobody, which is fantastic. She's like, no, I'm going back to my father. I don't need any, I don't need any of this. Mm-hmm. And she even says to Nicholas, you know, because Nicholas has fallen for Anne straight away. Yeah. Um, and she's like, you know, did you really think that I would fall in love with you after three days? Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, yeah, that would be ridiculous. So she goes off and she's independent and she doesn't need to marry anybody. And then you're left unsure about what's going to happen with Eustacia. But I just loved 
that moment when Leonard and Nicholas decide to go off together. Yes, <laughs> they're going to run away to Calais or Cannes or wherever it was for a few days um, <laughs> or a few weeks. Perhaps. Because they think, why waste their honeymoon rooms, uh, the, the runaway rooms, and uh, they're going to go and enjoy it themselves. And they say so funny when they're just like, women are so damned unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and indeed throughout um, Eamon's plays, perhaps perhaps more so in other ones, you often get strong, intelligent women and quite weak, foolish men. <laughs> um, and the, yeah, the extremes aren't drawn that much in this one. Um, but I, I did end admiring Anne rather more than I admired either of the men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another of his really, his, his, yeah. Sorry, another of his plays is um, for 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 being my favourite of his is Mister Pym Passes By, um, which is similarly about uh, love triangles. In fact, so that's about um, a couple called George and something, <laughs> um, where um, they're they're happily married, um, and a man called Mister Pym just passes by, and he's he's this delightful, absent-minded character who um, just happens to mention something in passing that leads them to uh, realise that the late woman's first husband, who she thought had died, is in fact still alive. Oh. And so the rest of the play is their different reactions to discovering that they're bigamists. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, at the same time, there's a sort of parallel love story with George's son and someone else, or George's daughter and someone else. I forget what the relationships exactly are. Um, um, and is <laughs> It's quite, what's quite amusing is what Eamon writes about why he wrote that play, which was, um, he said, I saw a woman who wanted to hang orange curtains and wasn't allowed to hang orange curtains. And by the end of the play, I knew she would have hung the orange curtains. I wanted to work out how she got there. <laughs> and I think he said about, that I wrote actually, that um, I just saw a man opening door and being asked if it was a hotel and saying a sort of hotel. And I wondered what sort of hotel and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know how disingenuous he was being. He wrote those things in his autobiography. But um, I like the idea of a play starting from that sort of point and wondering, how do we get to this point? What would happen yeah. next? No, I yeah. think it's a, a very clever play and a very interesting one that's, um, for the time period, I expected a much more simplistic and, I suppose, um Stereotypical ending, really. I thought, oh, you know, just two couples will go off together and it'll be a very funny thing about, you know, relationships. Um, yeah. But actually, it's a lot deeper than you think. And I think he does sort of play those expe- expectations, doesn't he? Because we, we see Jane, uh, sorry, um, Nicholas and Anne almost getting together. Or, or, yes, because like, so they're yeah. very flirtatious. I mean, the thing is, though, because I haven't read the play, I don't know how far from the text the performance went, but they were very flirtatious and it seems like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. Yeah, and what's interesting is watching it, knowing that so so many spoilers in this guy. Sorry, <laughs> knowing that um, Anne wants to borrow money, yeah. rather than knowing us, all the lines make sense in that context yeah. as well, especially from her point of view. Um, so yeah, it, it is some some clever writing for that section. Um, I think yeah, they probably played it slightly more flirtatiously <laughs> than than other people might, <laughs> but you know, why not? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, as, as I said when we talked about it uh, an episode or two ago, very exciting that an Amon play is on a London stage, albeit a tiny one. And I'm hoping it paves the way for other Amon plays to be adapted, which would be lovely. Well, I would hope so too, because he, he's a very, it's very different. 
you know, I did feel like I was watching a Noel Coward play when I was watching it. It's um, It really wasn't what I expected. I think so many people think of A.A. Milne and just cutesy Winnie the Pooh. Um, there's a lot more depth to his writing than that. And I think Blythe Spirit-wise as well, um, you know, people often think of Noel Coward as just as being light-hearted musicals, that kind of thing. But actually, Blythe Spirit is very, I think, ahead of its time. It's very feminist in a way, actually. Mm. And um, again, the ending is not what you think it's going to be. And he does make Charles out to be an absolute idiot, which I love. Yes. And isn't Madame McCarthy just one of the best characters amazing. Of, in drama? Absolutely amazing. And Angela Lansbury was perfect when she played her, exactly as I imagined. So I've I've seen it a couple of times on the stage, um, neither of which, sadly, with Angela Lansbury, or indeed Alison Stebbin, who I believe also played her recently, oh, which would be wonderful. Would be wonderful. Um, but yes, the two I saw were... They weren't amateur productions, but they certainly weren't famous productions. <laughs> um, oh, right. Yeah, in fact, the second one might have been a student one, thinking about it, I can't remember. Um, but I don't think you can go that far wrong with... This, Noel Cowick is such a gift of a part on the on the page, with both the lines and the massively over-the-top persona mm. um, with Manuel Cati. And have you seen the film? Yes, I have, yeah. Which I also love. I mean, Margaret Rutherford, obviously perfect to mm. play someone like that. And she's not on the stage that that much, but... Leave such an impression. Yes. <laughs> a real delight. Um, have you seen many of Coward's other plays? I don't think I've seen any others. I might have done without realising it, but I can't think. <laughs> I think... What else have I seen? I've seen uh, Hay Fever. saw that last year. I don't remember that much about it, actually. Um, I saw Design for Life, a long, Design for Living a long time ago, and I have seen Still Life, the one that um, Brief Encounter is based on. Which makes a quite interesting comparison with Reef Encounter because it's in some ways rather funnier, and perhaps unsurprisingly, um, and maybe slightly less poignant, I guess. Maybe it's only played for humour more than the film is. Oh right, I love that film. Me too. Yeah, it's wonderful. But if you get a chance to see a play, is it also? I think particularly because there's more of the. Um, the woman in behind the counter in the coffee shop and her and her love interest. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's well. great. Yeah, so there's there's all the more of that, which you know, like you know, classic coward. Um, but I think those are all the ones I've seen. Hmm. Well, I've seen one more Amon play years and years ago. I saw Miss Elizabeth Bennet, his adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, which was fun. But um, I really would like to see that. Yeah, it's. Except it was one of those times where I was like, I can't believe two people I love this much are coming together. It's great. <laughs> well, you know, we need to start a campaign. AA Milne plays on the London stage. Yeah, so if any theatre directors or producers are listening... <laughs> <laughs> this is what we want. We want it and we'd be willing to play all of the roles. Yeah. We'll play all the parts and we'll also form the audience. <laughs> Just stick a mirror up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, I mean, The Dover Road sold out its run and got good reviews. Um, Michael Billington wrote a very nice review of it in The Guardian, in fact. Oh, I have um, to look that up. Yeah. Um, so, maybe, fingers crossed, and that film next year might mean that people are tempted to do it. Oh, yes, the film of the biography. Yeah, so yes, film very much, sadly not the film of The Dover Road, which would be wonderful, but. Um, but but with, with some questionable casting that we're slightly concerned about. Slightly concerned, although at the same time, I love it when anyone from Neighbours does well in their career, so I'm happy that Margaret Robbie's in it. 
So would you say then that you think that A.A. Milne, this is typical of his plays? I think it is pretty difficult. He often writes about love triangles, particularly where um, there's a married couple and someone else. Uh, that seems to come up again and again, which his wife must have loved, but, um, seeing it on the stage. He, te- he, in his later plays, he maybe gets a little more heavy-handed with the the pathos, and there's more of that sort of thing. Right. Um, he he did a play called Success. It was called something else in America. I don't know what it was, remember what it was called there, which was all about someone who had a lot of success early in life um, <laughs> and how to deal with that later, which, yeah, I think... It was a bit too self-reflexive. It was like, I think one of the most interesting plays he did, um, he wrote was called, um, the great Broxop, which was, is about someone who uses his child in advertising for, I can't remember if it's a medicine or, or like a honey or something like, but the, the, the baby's face is on the jar and the child grows up to really resent being used to further his father's fame. <laughs> and this was even before, I believe, Christopher Robin was born, let alone before, and it's definitely before the Wind the Pooh books were written. So it's a really interesting foresight about what happens if you use a child as part of your product, as it were, and then, you know, how the child will resent that later. Years before this then happened to Eamon himself. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yes, those who are saying, why are you talking about this when we can't go and see it? You sh- can get relatively affordable copies of lots of Amon's plays online. You should be able to track down a copy of The Dover Road in a collection. I think it's in the collection Three Plays, and then confusingly also in a different collection published by Penguin called Four Plays, <laughs> which is not the same as a different collection called Four Plays. <laughs> so good luck, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it may well also be on Project Gutenberg or something, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but I, no, I would definitely recommend reading it because it's excellent. And um, if only it were more suitable, I would in topic. I would love to do it at school, but yeah, I think my kids are a bit young for that at the moment. Oh, they might be. A level uh, drama could be an interesting text. That'd be great. Yeah. I'd love it if someone did that. If you did that. Um, and yes, Mister Himbass's Fire is similarly worth writing down. And then that was also turned into a novel. Um, later called Mr. Pym and then when reprinted called Mr. Pym passes by again so not the word again was me that's not in the title um so yes the the complication history of Amon's plays and their titling is endlessly confusing but but yeah I also really love the novel Mr. Pym I think it was a really good reworking well you are just selling Amon tonight oh he's so great I love him maybe as much as I love cats I don't know I feel like you should have done your PhD on AML. Look, I did one only the other day. I was thinking, why didn't I do my PhD on AML? <laughs> Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Mum and Dad, if you're listening, I'm not going to do another PhD. <laughs> Won't sink the whole family into debt. <laughs> but, um, but I think someone should. I think it'd be really interesting to write about. I think perhaps I worried that I, my PhD would just be, I love AML. He's great. <laughs> why does no one else love him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yes, it is interesting how obviously everything else he wrote was more or less fallen out of favour. Well, having said that, his the biggest success or the biggest sort of remembered thing after the Winning Pooh books is a play of his called Toad of Toad Hall. Oh. So that's still... I think we did Toad of Toad Hall at school. Yeah, um, I think I've done it as well. So yes, people people forget that that was Amy on perhaps in the, in the Kenneth Graham elements of it. But, yes. Um, yeah. No, I think I thought that was... Him as well. How strange. Yeah. 
he, he, um, Eamon was a very big Kenneth Graham fan, and so, yes, enjoyed adapting that, I believe. But I think that was, I think that was towards the end of his playwriting career, because he did, he did almost all his plays before, at the beginning of his career. Oh, right. He, um, before he moved on to other things. But was very famous in London as a playwright before he got success elsewhere. So when, when the Pooh was published, it was, well, I guess when, when we were very young was published, it was lots of playwright writes children's books sort of things. Oh, on. I didn't know yeah. that. How the tables have turned. <laughs> well, there we go. You learn something new every day, Simon. Don't you just. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you had to pick, Rachel, between, and indeed you do, because that's what we're doing right now, <laughs> between The Dover Road and Blind Spirit, which would you go for? Well, you know, I love Blind Spirit enormously, and I never thought that I would find a play that I would say, oh, yeah, that's more entertaining than that, because I just love it. But actually... I think I'm going to go Dover Road on this. Oh, that's really exciting. I yeah. like that. Um, perhaps less a surprise, although I do very much love Blythe Spirit, I'm also going to go the Dover Road because of how much I love Aemion. <laughs> well, there we are. I mean, it really was... I'd, I mean, perhaps if I'd read it, I wouldn't have felt so excited by it, but having seen it performed and done so well, it really mm, did mm. capture me. I thought it was excellent. It must have been, I guess, I, I quite envy you being able to go and watch it without knowing what happens, <laughs> because I was yeah. just, I knew, I've read it so many times um, that I knew what was going to happen in more or less every scene. <laughs> <laughs> but I still obviously loved it very much. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for organising it. Oh, thanks for coming. Well. And sorry again, everyone, that um, that it's no longer on. <laughs> yeah, apologies. One day, uh, I'm sure, you know, on the strength of this, it's going to be a revival. Yes, hopefully. The strength of the performance or of on this podcast? On this podcast, <laughs> quite podcast great, yeah. We're very influential. Yeah. <laughs> Our audience is far wider than people know. <laughs> Run into the tens. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> great. Um, so next time we have decided what we're going to do. Oh, yeah. Um, well, not for the first half, no. but for the second half, we will be uh, comparing two much like Persephone titles, which are The Homemaker by Dorothy Camfield Fisher and The Victorian Chaise Long by Marguerite Lesky. Which on the surface don't appear to have much in common, but we will find commonalities. We will delve. We will delve. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so if you would like to read those to read along with us, please do. Um, otherwise, just listen to us ramble about them next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and again, yes, <laughs> please do send us suggestions. Yes, we need them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.